after a six month hiatus for most of our class periods. So my voice is pretty much gone, and uh, I'll try not to be too wretched to listen to. Although just to give you some perspective, when I was here in service, Enos still preached. And he sounds much, sounded then much like he does now. So tonight, good luck. Just me, and my voice that sounds like this. All right, so uh, I, I've, t I've entitled the, the story tonight, uh, Of the Sons of Israel. And so it's, this is going to require some review because, uh, well, okay, so how many of you, this is your first class that you've been Anyway, we've been looking at this for, so to catch, to bring you up to speed, um, we've been looking at the stories of Genesis, and uh, since last summer actually, and I've been looking at them um, not so much in, in their uh, historical accuracy, which is kind of how we read the book of Genesis. So generally if you would go to Bible school and take a class in the book of Genesis, you might expect to talk about the literal 24 days of creation or the fossil evidence for the flood or things like that. That's not really what I was. That's not really what I was focusing on um, in our study of Genesis. I was looking at these stories more as um, reading them and and wondering or asking the question why God saw fit to put these exact stories in this exact book that was going to last for thousands of years and impact um, a significant portion of the world's population even today, some six thousand years later. Uh, so we talked about Jacob last time, and um, I talked about how God met Jacob at the ladder at Bethel and promised him that he would be with him wherever he went. And then uh, Jacob, so we talked about Jacob's name being a deceiver, and how that he lived up to his name by spending much of his life running from himself and the problems that he didn't want to face. So God brought Jacob to a place uh, in, actually not that far from um, Bethel, Strangely enough, I mean, it, was, it wasn't right there, but it was in the proximity, I believe. God brings Jacob to a place where he really has nothing left. Esau is coming, and uh, Jacob has sent his family across the river. He sent all his servants across the river. He sent all his flocks and herds across the river. It's kind of a barrier between himself and Esau. And Jacob is alone. And we looked at this in, in some detail the last several times that we had class, which, you know, ends in December and in March, strangely enough. And, um, but there's one thing that I want to focus on about that in particular, just kind of in review before we keep going here. So Jacob has spent most of his life running from the things that he didn't feel like facing. That was kind of his go-to um, coping mechanism. Now we don't like that, so we'll just move on and keeps on going. Well, God brings him to a place where uh, he has nothing left. He's stripped of all of his, he's stripped of all of his, um, defenses, so to speak. And here's what's interesting. Jacob doesn't in that moment fall on his knees and surrender to God and say, all right, I have nothing left now. I'm going to let you be in control. God gives Jacob the opportunity to fight with him, which is really interesting because we don't think that it's, we think, we probably tend to think that it's not okay to wrestle with God. But in reality, God brought Jacob to a point where he had nothing left anymore and then gives him the opportunity to wrestle with him. 
And I think that's probably exactly where God wanted Jacob to be. And so just, just as, a, as, a, as, a, as a lesson from that, in the times when you find yourself with nothing left anymore and you're fighting with God, don't knock yourself for fighting with him. I say fighting. I think you understand what I mean. Wrestling with him. Don't knock yourself for that because maybe God wants you to be there. And maybe he brought you into that situation so that you could wrestle with him. And so that you could learn what you needed to learn through that experience. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, Jacob asked God to bless him. Jacob finally realizes who he's fighting with here. And he asks God to bless him. And the, and the angel says, what is your name? And Jacob says, well, I'm Jacob. And Jacob, in that moment, recognizes before God that this is who I am. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one that's been trying to supplant. I'm this wretched person. And, uh, and then God blesses him. And God blesses him by touching his thigh and taking away his ability to run, which I think is so neat. And so from that point on, Jacob limped around. It was the biggest blessing he ever got in his life. And I just touched briefly on how that... Uh, <clears throat> Jacob limped to Esau, he limped to Shechem, he limped to Bethel, he went back to his father Isaac, and then in the time of Joseph, he was carried to Egypt. And that was the last time that Jacob any, ever went anywhere very fast. All because God blessed him by taking away his <coughs> so to speak. Um, but anyway, as a result of that encounter with the angel, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the angel says, the angel touches his thigh, up his tendon, and essentially, and the angel says, no more will you be called Jacob, but you're going to be called Israel. And we don't really think of, we, we call them Israelites, but we tend to refer to Jacob as just Jacob. We know his name changed, but later, kind of throughout the, the book of Genesis, even after this point, he's still referred to as Jacob. Um, and um, Israel means wrestle, or I should say, in this case, it means to wrestle with God. And so Jacob's followers were called Israelites, which means the people who wrestle with God, which is not what you think of when you think of God's people. And yet, that's what God wanted them to be known as. These are the people who wrestle with God, which I think is so neat, um, because it doesn't mean that life is all good and everything goes well and our relationship with God is always perfect and where it needs to be. It means that we actually struggle our way through life, and it's okay, because that's part of the identity that God has given us, is that we... We wrestle with him. We engage with him. We ask him hard questions. Uh, we have communication with him. Anyway, um, so Jacob's sons are known as Israelites, meaning the people who wrestle with God. Now, here's another interesting thing. When Moses leads the children of Israel out of the Promised Land, or out of, out of Egypt, they don't go straight to the Promised Land, do they? They have this amazing showdown with Pharaoh and Egypt is basically decimated, um, and they go and they go out into the desert, which I think is another really interesting point, because if you sit down, anybody who's, I don't know quite how to say this exactly, but anybody who's really fought with God doesn't come out of that experience, and now everything is good. Actually, usually it's quite the opposite. They wrestle with God, and they come out of the experience with a deeper relationship with God, but life is actually sometimes still really hard. And that's kind of the story of Jacob's sons. Jacob has this um, 
experience with God where he comes kind of face to face with who he is and who God is, and he recognizes who he is and who God is, and he kind of has a lousy life after that too. It's not like everything went well for Jacob. After, you know, all the way up until this point, things were bad, and then they got significantly better. It's, no, that's not it's exactly the opposite of what happened. So if you think about the Israelites, or the sons of Israel, the people who wrestle with God, and you think about all the blessings and the promises that God has made to these people, what kind of a family would you expect them to be? They're the people of God. God's going to use... <laughs> Imagine God telling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's going to use your descendants. Or I'm, I'd say, I'm going to use your descendants. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. you think your kids would actually turn out to be something pretty good, wouldn't you? And, uh, yeah, well, that's not exactly the case. Um, I want to tell you the story of the sons of Jacob tonight. And it's not a pretty story. They had their share of scheming and lying and raping and murder. And all of those things. And yet, it was a group of people, I think this is the thing to remember, it was a group of people that God did, with with whom God did what he does best, and that's redeem. And use people that were really broken, and really messed up, and people who wrestled with him. And actually, it's really neat, because uh, a lot of Jacob's sons, throughout the course of their life, kind of follow the same pattern that Jacob did. They started out as something pretty pretty ugly. And by the end of their lives, you see something pretty <coughs> which hopefully we'll get to by the end. Our story begins in Haran, which is where Jacob fled from Esau uh, the first time. This is, this is Jacob before he was married. And I want, to read, I want to just read for you Genesis 29, 1 to 30. I'm going to be reading several sections as we go throughout uh, the lesson tonight. And you don't necessarily have to turn to them. I have some of them on the board for you. Genesis 29, uh, beginning of reading verse 21. <clears throat> and Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. It came to pass that in the morning, behold, oh, oops, it was Leah, and he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not so be done in our country, to give the younger thee for the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve thee yet in seven other years. So Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served him yet seven other years. So Jacob is this young married man of about 82 years old, something like that now. And uh, every girl's dream, right? Married 82-year-old single guy. And um, he plans on marrying one woman. And exactly eight days later, he has four women now living in his house. Like, what could possibly go wrong <coughs> with that? Now, they uh, begin to have children, which they seem to be very, uh, very good at back in those days. Jacob's wives begin to have children and form a family. So Leah, actually the Bible says in verse uh, 31, the next verse there when I read, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
So Leah goes ahead and knocks out four sons all in a row. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. <clears throat> Rachel says, uh, we can't be having this. And so she gets her maid, Bilhah. Actually, she gets Jacob to take her maid, Bilhah, as a wife. We don't know what Bilhah, Bilhah thought of this situation, but be that as it may. And um, Bilhah goes ahead and gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Leah sees this, and she's like, well, we can't be having this. So she gives her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob to wife. And Zilpah goes ahead and gives birth to Gad and Asher. Now, as far as I know, this is the correct birth order. <coughs> Leah sees what's going on and says, we can't be having this, and helps herself to two more babies named Issachar and Zebulun. <laughs> and finally, Rachel, after much sorrow and tribulation, gives birth to Joseph some years later. Benjamin was actually born after they fled from Laban, and so that, that happens a little later. So we have uh, 12 sons, 11 at, at the early stage here, but we have 12 sons um, from four different women. And you'll notice if you read through the passage, which we didn't take the time to do, is that these women acted like childbearing was a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but, but uh, they acted like it was really important to them to bear children and to bear sons in particular and to have lots of them. Why? The firstborn son, talked about this some before, the firstborn son inherited a double portion. And that is something that was practiced in their culture before this or up to this time, and actually on through the Bible times. Um, and so if you think about uh, the, the, uh, the story of the prodigal son, for example, in Luke 15, the older son would have received two portions and the younger son one. So when the younger son goes off into a far country, he takes a third of his father's of his father's uh, net worth, essentially. So we have all these all these kids running around here now. And uh, as I said, the firstborn son received the double portion and the blessing and would take his father's place as the patriarch of the family and become responsible for for his uh, for his clan. Now Particularly in the uh, sons of Israel, for example, it wasn't just that you become the head of the family. It's also that you become the recipient of the blessings that God has given to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And God has met with all three of those men up to this point, and made covenants with them, and made promises to them, and told them, I will do this and this and this for you. And so it's reasonable to think that the, the next son, or the next family head, is also going to have those kind of encounters with God. Now, the law of Moses makes it clear also, now this, that's obviously after this time, the law of Moses makes it clear that the, the son that's going to receive the blessing has to be the actual firstborn son. Uh, the law of Moses specifically says that if you marry two wives and one of them you love more than the other, you still have to go with the legitimate firstborn. So if the unloved wife, so to speak, bears a son first, that son is automatically required to be the recipient of the, the firstborn blessings. You can't just say, ah, yeah, that sounds great, but I actually like this one better, and we're going to go with this one. It's like, no, you can't do that. We don't know exactly <coughs> what it was like here in the time of, uh, of Jacob, but the whole family structure and birth order here becomes a power struggle between Rachel and Leah. And there's probably several reasons for that. One... Obviously, a mother wants her child to be um, honored or to be put above. 
But the other thing that happens is these women are significantly younger than Jacob, like possibly as many as like 60 years younger than he is. And uh, they can expect to live a significant amount of time after Jacob is gone. And depending which son becomes the new patriarch is going to determine how, potentially how you are treated after Jacob is gone. So if a son of Leah, for example, becomes the next family patriarch, Leah would expect to have a better place in the family household and especially over her sister Rachel. And the same would be true if that would be the opposite. And so you see this, this power struggle emerging here between uh, Rachel and Leah. But if you look at this list, it's obvious that Leah wins, right? So she has at least, she has six sons before Rachel has any. Now there's a case to be made that you can... You can get rid of Bilhah and you can get rid of Zilpah because they were lesser wives or concubines. And so you're going to say, well, who's going to be, a, you know, which woman is going to have her son be chosen? It would obviously be Leah or Rachel. But if you're going to go by birth order, that means Joseph is going to be at least seventh on the list in line for the, in line for the, uh, the family patriarch. Because Leah has six sons before Rachel has any. But that's not really the end of the story here. There's this, there's this obscure little passage in Genesis 31 that most of us have read and we're all familiar with, and we're likely familiar with, and we don't really understand it. It's an interesting thing that happens when they're fleeing from Laban. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. So there's a lot of theories on why Rachel would steal Laban's household gods. And the one that I find that makes the most sense is this. There's ancient Mesopotamian writings that indicate that the household teraphim, is what they would call the household gods, were passed on to the head of the family. And so it was assigned within the family and in the community that whoever possessed the household gods was the, the family patriarch or head. And so Rachel, of all people, the younger daughter, and the one whose son has zero legitimate chance at becoming the next head of the sons of Israel, steals the family, uh, steals her father's teraphim, her father's gods, and then <laughs> hides them uh, in her camel's furniture. And then uh, when Laban comes after Jacob, Jacob uh, Laban says, uh, so Jacob, what's up with taking my gods? And Jacob said, uh, we didn't actually take your gods. And you can have a book, and if you find them, whoever took them can be killed. Obviously, Jacob didn't know what was going on. Well, Laban doesn't find them because Rachel pulls a nasty little trick, and life goes on. But the Jewish sages believe that Jacob's curse actually came true, because not too long later, not too long later, some short years later, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And it is believed by some, at least, that Jacob's curse actually came true uh, in, in her untimely death there, her childbirth. But I think it's probably accurate to say that Rachel steals her father's teraphim in an effort to elevate her son's position, because now she has them, and she can give them to Joseph, and that's a sign that Joseph is supposed to be the favored son and firstborn instead of any of the other sons of Leah or Bilhah or Zilpah. So, going on. Uh, no, actually, how do you think Leah felt about that little theft? Or Jacob, or Reuben, 
or any of the others, would that make you happy? If you knew that, uh, okay, we kind of got this family feud going on here, and to make matters worse, Rachel, the sneaky little younger daughter that can't have any children, goes ahead and steals something to try to elevate the position of her children. So you have this thing kind of going deeper and getting bigger. Um, <coughs> she's trying to position her son at the head of the line. Okay, so this is not the last time that these gods show up. So they go down into, uh, into Canaan, and they have their encounter with Esau. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he wrestles with God, and now he has a limp, and they go to Shechem. And they buy some land in Shechem, and through a, a variety of circumstances there, Simeon and Levi uh, destroy the town of Shechem. Now, Jacob's not all that happy about this. And uh, immediately following that, God tells, God meets Jacob and says, Jacob, I want you to go to Bethel. I want, I want to visit you there. And this, then this, these uh, several verses here in Genesis 35 come up. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments, and let us rise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and I would include those teraphim, by the way, <coughs> and the, all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Why? If you're going to get rid of something, why does Scripture say that he buried the, the oak tree in Shechem? Well, to understand that, we have to know a little bit more about the story of Abraham. So God meets Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So Abraham travels south, and he comes to Shechem. And God meets Abraham. Specifically, it says this in Genesis 14, 15. And God meets Abraham by the terebinth tree, which was at Shechem. Well, not an oak tree, but a terebinth tree. But there's this significance about a tree at Shechem. Well, the other thing that we understand, or that, that we need to understand, is that Isaac also comes to Shechem, and he, dig a, he dug a well there. And that well is uh, actually still there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's called Jacob's Well. Um, and uh, what Shechem became in the mind of the Hebrew was, this is the place where we met God. And actually, years later in the land of Canaan, after the Israelites come back out of Egypt, Shechem becomes their first capital city. And so Jacob, there's, there's all this spiritual and family significance centered around this place, this town called Shechem. And Jacob gathers the teraphim and the other, the other pagan, uh, pagan gods that they have, and he buries them. Why? Well, because we, we're getting rid of them, right? Well, then why would you mark the burial spot if you're trying to get rid of them? Because that's what he did by burying them by an oak tree. And it's very possible that Jacob knows that we're leaving, but someday we're going to come back, and I need to know where these things are so that I can pass them on to my family so that we have these symbols of authority. And we're going to come back to that later again. But um, all this backdrop brings us to the story of Joseph, finally, in Genesis 37. I'll read a few verses for you here. Genesis 37, Introduction to Joseph. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock of his brethren. 
And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So we, our first introduction to Joseph is that one, we would call him a tattletale. Because he kind of, you know, the brothers weren't acting very well, and so Jacob goes and rats them out to his dad. <coughs> and then we find out that Joseph is loved by Jacob more than any of the rest of his siblings are, which is only, um, how shall we say, increasing the family rift. Basically, you have this divide in uh, the children of Israel. You have the sons of Joseph on one hand, which at this point is the sons of Jacob on one hand, uh, of Rachel, sorry, which is Joseph, who's 17, and Benjamin, who's somewhere around a newborn, something like that. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was fairly young. And then we have all the other ten sons, the sons of Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah. So it's them against Joseph at this point. Everybody knows that Joseph is the favorite. Everybody also knows that he's the firstborn son of Rachel, and they're not exactly sure what this means at that point. They're all older than him, and yet you have this young guy who dad makes a coat of many colors for, possibly signifying that this is the son that's going to receive the birthright blessing. Now, how do you feel about that? If you're Jacob's sons, and put yourself in their shoes. Like, we get really hard on them, I think, for, for acting the way they do towards Jacob. I, towards Joseph, but I frankly don't blame them. You know how it is when you have the world by the tail and the, the new guy comes in the youth group and is kind of a brat? Now imagine if you know that one day he's going to be your bishop, and he knows that too, and he's acting a little snotty because of that. Yeah, you can kind of imagine how you'd react to that. Now, put that in a setting where there's a whole lot more at stake than just being a bishop or the head of a church. It's very possible that someday this guy is going to tell you when to go to bed, when to get up. In other words, he's going to have complete control over what you do and what happens with all of that stuff. And so that's kind of the tension that's happening in the relationship here. And uh, even more than that, Joseph has these stupid dreams about, you know, other things bowing down to him, and he has the nerve to actually tell them to his father and his brothers. And so this rift is getting wider and wider. It's like, Obviously, there's a lot of contention between Joseph and his brothers. And so Joseph's brothers are off feeding the flock, Shechem, of all places. And Jacob sends Joseph out at the age of 17 to go and find them and see how things are going. Well, they see Joseph coming, and uh, these were not godly men, by the way. And so they see Joseph coming, you know the story. They grab him, they throw him in a pit, they decide to kill him. And then while Reuben's off somewhere, Reuben being the oldest, son, while Reuben's off somewhere, they take Joseph and they sell him into slavery. And the story here in Genesis splits. Um, they have their problems solved, essentially. So Jacob's sons go home. Uh, Jacob believes their lies and their deceit. He mourns for his son. <coughs> and that's really the last that we, that we read about uh, Joseph's brothers, until really until the time that they're in Egypt. With the exception of this one really weird story about Joseph, about Judah's sons being killed by God, and then Judah ending up having a child with his daughter-in-law Tamar. That's in Genesis 30-something, 38. Anyway, uh, but that's really all that we read about them. So the storyline now follows Joseph. He's 17 years old at the time, and from this point on, it seems that Joseph has undergone a fairly dramatic transformation. 
there is nothing bad said about Joseph from the time that he was sold into slavery to the time that he dies, like 93 years later. <coughs> He's actually one of the few characters in Scripture where there's a significant portion of, of uh, verses dedicated to their lives where nothing bad is written about them. And Joseph seems to have figured some things out. Uh, everything that he does in the land of Egypt prospers. He manages Potiphar's house. That prospers. He goes to prison. He becomes the, uh, the manager over the prison, so to speak. The prison does well. He um, obviously has a good relationship with God. Potiphar's wife gives him a chance to sin, and Joseph says, I can't do this. It doesn't matter if nobody sees or if nobody's going to find out. I cannot do this and sin against God. Joseph gets thrown into prison. He's there for about uh, 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he was 17. As best as we can figure out, he was 17 when he goes to Egypt. He uh, goes to prison sometime after that. He gets out of prison at approximately the age of 28 or 30 after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and he becomes second in command of the nation of Egypt. And then sometime, so you have, the way you can figure some of that out is uh, you have him interpreting Pharaoh's dream, and then you have seven years of plenty after that, followed by two years of famine before Jacob's sons come down to Egypt to buy food. So you have some ability to give your timeline there. Anyway, so Joseph's gone. Jacob and his, uh, the rest of his family live about the next 20 years in Egypt. And you have Joseph living in Egypt now. And, and knowing that his father and his, his family household is up there in the land of Canaan somewhere, he's second in command in Egypt for almost 10 years before he sees his brothers again. Do you think he ever questioned the the uh, possibility of the still alive or what they were doing up there. Do you think he ever asked the traders that came through, hey, did you do you know who this do you know who the Hebrew is? Do you know who Jacob is? How's he doing? <coughs> um, do you think he was ever tempted to take a trip up through there just to see what he could figure out? There are a lot of gaps in the story here that we don't know. We don't know exactly what Joseph was thinking during this time. But the years of plenty have ended famine becomes severe. This we get the story here in Genesis 42. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. So Jacob understands that they're basically going to make their ropes here. Sends the boys down to Egypt with the exception of Benjamin. He keeps Benjamin at home. And Joseph sees them coming, and he doesn't treat them very nicely. Why not? So this is some of what's going on here. Uh, he's testing them. Now the question with this that, that we could ask with this experience is, has Joseph at this point forgiven his brothers? Next question would be, what does it mean to forgive? Because I think we tend to confuse the word forgive and the word trust. We can forgive somebody without actually, without actually trusting them. And <coughs> Joseph sees his brothers, and I think he was actually probably pretty happy to see them. And I think it's also very obvious that he has forgiven them because of the way he treated them. But he gets a little rough with them, and he questions them out, and he asks them specifically if they have any other brothers at home. Why? Think about this. Four wives. Sons of Joseph 
the sons of uh, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin is the only one left. For all they know, Joseph is dead. There's one son of Rachel left, and he's the youngest by quite a bit. You have the sons of Zilpah, Leah, and Bilhah that come down to Egypt to buy bread. And Jake and Joseph wants to know: Are these the same men that sold me into slavery? And so he tests them because he wants to know how they feel about the last son of Rachel. And as he's as he's treating them uh, as he's treating them this way, we get to these verses here in Genesis 42. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. So, Jacob, so Joseph is saying, leave. one of you needs to stay here. Well, that was his way of getting them back, essentially. One of you needs to stay here, and he keeps Simeon, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, by the way, this is the same Simeon that him and his brother go into Shechem and murder a bunch of helpless people. Same guy. Now, 30 years later, whatever it is, now a number of years later, he wants to see if Simeon's the same person that went into Shechem and killed people. Essentially, what's happening. He wants to see if Simeon's the same person that sold him into slavery. How's he going to respond when I say that he's the one that needs to stay? So Simeon stays, and uh, they did so, picking up there in the middle. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Interesting. You know who says that? It's people that feel guilty. They're the ones that respond like that when something bad happens. They're like, we blew it, and now God's judging us for that. <clears throat> and so, right there, in this first encounter that Joseph has with his brothers, you have this, this indication that they're probably not the same men they used to be. But, Jake, but Joseph is not ready to reveal himself yet. He orchestrates events in such a way that they have to bring the last son of Rachel to him, and he's going to test them again because he really wants to see how do they feel about the sons of Rachel. Are they really okay with the son of Rachel being in charge of them? Which is actually, which was literally the case at this point. As they were in the hand of Joseph, his dreams had been fulfilled. <clears throat> all right. So the brothers go back home. Jacob's not all that happy about Simeon staying behind, and he says, yeah, there's actually, guys, there's no way you're taking Benjamin. So the famine keeps going on, things get worse, and Jason, Jacob says, all right, guys, go down and buy food, and they say, we, we can't go unless we send Benjamin. We can't. And there's this, there's this back and forth struggle between Jacob and his sons. Finally, Jacob caves in, caves in and I don't have the exact reference there, but I should just find that. It's in uh, Genesis 43. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And the, Lord, and the God Almighty, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So Jacob kind of gets this fatalistic mentality. He says, fine, if that's what it takes, go do it. I lost Joseph. I'll buy leave Benjamin. I'll leave Benjamin. <clears throat> so, Benjamin comes with his brothers to the house of Joseph again. So Simeon is released. Joseph gets them all together in his house, and he's going to test them again. He wants to see how they respond to this, to the son of Rachel. So he feeds them a meal, but he puts, he, he seats them by age. Funny enough, wouldn't that be freaky? He seats them by age, and then he makes sure that Benjamin gets twice as much food as any of the rest of them. Why? 
Now think about it. These guys have been living in a famine for the last probably about three to four years now. They have had very little, they have likely had very little um, variety in their diet. And so you, you come off of that, you're living in up in Caden, things aren't going well. You've had grain and corn or whatever, but that's probably about it. And then they sit down to this feast, and the youngest son is being treated way better than any of the rest of you are. That's test number one. He wants to see how they respond when Benjamin gets treated better than they do. And then you have this interesting little story. <coughs> I mean, it's, it's actually so interesting that we have to read it. Genesis 44, <coughs> verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in the sack's mouth. And my cup, the silver cup, and the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money, and he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as morning, as soon as morning was light, the men were sent away and their asses. And when they were gone out of the city and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, ah, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh? And whereby indeed he divineth, ye have done evil in so doing. Okay, so that verse there, verse 5, he's talking about the cup. This is Joseph's cup, in other words, a symbol of his authority and power and prestige. Other people didn't get to drink out of Joseph's cup. This was his. And, uh, and a sign that he was second in command in Egypt. And now Benjamin ends up with it in his sack. Let's read on. And he overtook them. So the steward goes after the, uh, the brothers. And he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. And they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold the money which we found in our sacks' mouths, we brought again out, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we will also be thy be my Lord's bondman. And he said unto them, Now also let it be according to your word. <coughs> he with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. So there's this inner there's this uh, exchange going on between the steward and the sons of and the uh, the sons of Jacob. The steward says, You guys took Joseph's cup. And the brothers say, actually, we did not take his cup. And if one of us did take his cup, you could kill him and the rest of us will be your servants. And the steward says, yeah, nice offer, guys. Actually, whoever has the cup, we'll just take him and the rest of you can go home. He's offering them, in their face, a chance for them to be rid of the sons of Rachel forever. He wants to see how they're going to respond. So the cup is found... Okay, so the steward goes again, and he starts with Reuben, the oldest. And he goes all the way down through the 11 brothers, oldest to youngest, and he finds the cup in Benjamin's sack. How are the sons of Jacob going to respond to this? Now think of this context of all of the history that you have between Rachel and Leah. Can you imagine Simeon or Judah or Levi say, little fool is just like his mom. Stealing to try to gain power and prestige. Because that's exactly what Rachel did. And that Joseph is constantly trying to supplant his brothers. And now Benjamin does the exact same thing. This was, they had a, a golden opportunity to forever be rid of the sons of Rachel. And Joseph gives them that opportunity. He says, I want to see what you're made of. Are you really going to be okay? 
do you still care who's in charge? Or are you okay with what God wants? And the, the result is, the brothers all saddle up their horses, they go back into the city, and they basically fall in front of Joseph and beg for mercy. Those aren't the same people that sold Joseph into slavery. Something has happened to these men, and we have no idea what. The Bible does not tell us. There's a big 20-year gap there where the story follows Joseph and basically ignores what happens with the other sons of Jacob. But something happened because these men were now broken. And you can actually see that as, as the story progresses here uh, later on. So this, uh, this brings us to Joseph's response to what happened. Reading here from Genesis 45. So this is his, this is his first response when they realize who he is. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Therefore, Now therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall be neither earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. He hath made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That's easy to say now, right? What about when Joseph was in prison? But he looked at that, and he's like, guys, I know you feel really bad about this, but this is where God wanted me. Later on, uh, after Jacob dies, uh, the, sons of, the sons of Jacob come back to Joseph, and they're like, please have mercy on us, we're sorry. Because they, they were like, okay, Jacob's gone now, now Joseph's going to deal with this. And Joseph basically responds with the same thoughts. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, behold, we be thy servants, Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I am in the for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Alright, there's a lot of lessons that we can take from that. Uh, but that's actually not what I'm going to focus on, because the story of Rachel and Leah is not done. There's really interesting things that happen yet. Genesis 49. So the, uh, the clan of Jacob is in Egypt at this time. And uh, by the way, that was all part of God's plan. And no, I don't have time to get into that. There's some really cool stuff there. So Benjamin is like 21 years old at this time. He has 10 kids already. It says that. Uh, if you're doing well, I guess you got a ways to go. So Genesis 49, we are at the end of um, we are at the end of Jacob's life, and he gathers all his sons around him and he wants to bless them. So Who's going to be the firstborn? Now is now we come to the answer of the question. Who gets to be the inheritor of the firstborn blessings? Because Jacob's dying, and here we are. Now listen to these words here. Uh, Jacob, this is Genesis 49. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which, which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear ye, sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. So he goes to Reuben. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the excellent and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. So he recognizes that Reuben is the firstborn. Then he says this, Unstable is water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou didn't then defilest it, you went up to my couch. So basically what has happened uh, all the way a number of years back, actually uh, quite a few years before this, Reuben had gone in and laid with his father's concubines. And Absalom, strangely enough, does the same thing when he takes over the kingdom David. And what that symbolizes is essentially is that these are mine. These, these women belong to me because they're going to be mine anyway after dad dies. But because of that, Reuben gets disinherited. 
from the right of the first four. So then we come to uh, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren, so that's, that's sons two and three. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou unto their secret, unto their assembly. My honor be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Get this, get this. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Don't forget that phrase, because it's going to come up later again. Then he finally gets to Judah, fourth born. So he disinherits Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben's disinherited because of the concubine incident. Simeon and Levi are disinherited because of Shechem, because they went and destroyed Shechem. Now he gets to Judah, and this is what he says. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And he keeps going on after that. But essentially, he recognizes that Judah is the firstborn. Judah's going to be the leader. So he disinherits Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. He gets to Judah. But what about Joseph? <coughs> so he blesses Judah and tells him that you're going to be... Um, actually, he doesn't even bless Judah at this point. He just acknowledges that you're going to be the leader. But then he gets to, ben, then he gets to Joseph, and he drops the whole birthright firstborn blessing on Joseph. Okay, so you're a son of Jacob. Oh, right, now who's in charge, Dad? <coughs> Judah is acknowledged as the leader. Joseph gets the double portion. So who's in charge? Is it the sons of Leah or the son, or the son of Leah or the son of Rachel? All right, to understand some of this, I'm going to show you a map of Israel. <clears throat> we have Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So Moses was a Levite, and he leads the children of Israel out of the land of Canaan. After they get to Mount, out of the land of Egypt, after they get to Mount Sinai, God uh, gives them the specifications for the tabernacle, and then he specifies exactly where they're supposed to, each tribe is supposed to camp around the tabernacle, and then he specifies who goes first when they're marching through the wilderness. Judah was supposed to go first. God made that very clear. Judah was supposed to go first. They were the lead tribe. Moses dies. When Moses is at the end of his, end of his testament, who succeeds Moses? Can you tell me? He gets to talk. One word. Who was the next leader of Israel after Moses? Joshua. What tribe was he from? Anybody know? Joshua was an Ephraimite. Anything else by accident? Joshua first non-priest leader of the children of Israel is from the tribe of Ephraim. Oh, but Judah is supposed to go first. But Joshua was in charge. So you still have that tension going on here. Now we get into the uh, <coughs> to the uh, allotment of the 12 tribes. Uh, you can kind of see who has the biggest sections here, right? You've got Judah down here and Ephraim and Manasseh up here. That's like a significant 60%. Something like that. Here's the other interesting thing. Notice that, uh, what does it say there? <laughs> About Simeon and Levi. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's exactly what happened. Levi doesn't get an inheritance because they end up being the priests. So they inherit 48 cities. But that's it. They don't actually have a chunk of land that's just the tribe of Levi's land. Simeon. Uh, actually ends up getting their inheritance, if you look in the book of Joshua, 
you can see uh, the writing specifically, but it says that the inheritance of Judah was so big that Simeon had their inheritance among the brethren of Judah, so they were among the, among the children of Judah. So essentially, you have the tribe of Judah here, and Simeon basically gets a chunk of land within the tribe of Israel, and eventually dissipates out, and ceases to exist. So that part of Jacob's blessing prophecy came true. Here's the other interesting thing. So you're coming back to the land of Israel. Who gets Shechem? Because Shechem really matters. Because that's the seat of power in the land of Israel. Shechem is inherited by the children of Ephraim. I'm sorry, by the children of Manasseh, one of the sons of Leah. <clears throat> I'm sorry, one of the sons of Joseph. Ephraim is just to the south of that, and there's this little town in here called Shiloh. When they entered the land of Canaan and they stayed there, the tabernacle was set up at Shiloh, and that's where it stayed for quite a number of years. So you have the two most significant cities in the land of Israel, the place where the tabernacle was and what was essentially the, the capital city of Israel pre-king, pre-the era of pre-the era of kings, both falling in the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now you have a number of judges after that as well. <coughs> but then you get to the time of the kings. All right. What tribe was Saul from? Anybody know? Benjamin. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, strangely enough. Yeah, right, really. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. How fitting. The children of Joseph are supposed to leave, right? The capital city during the time of Saul is Shechem. <clears throat> Jerusalem actually is in the area of the uh, children of Benjamin, but uh, actually all the time that Saul was king in Israel, Jerusalem was held by the Jebusites and not even technically an Israelite city. Well, David becomes king. He's of the tribe of Judah. So you have this flip-flop going on back and forth. Benjamin's the first king, and then uh, Judah, the tribe that God said is going to lead, uh, offers, or one of their people becomes king, and, and David, and the last people to follow David are the people of Benjamin, because they're of the tribe of Saul, essentially, and they're like, no, 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 this is supposed to be over here. God obviously said that David is supposed to be king. So David becomes king, he attacks Jerusalem, conquers it, <coughs> pulls it into the inheritance of the tribes of Judah, and immediately moves the capital city to, to Jerusalem, away from the sons of Leah. I'm away from the sons of Jacob, or Rachel, sorry. Two generations later, so you have David, tribe of Judah, Solomon, tribe of Judah, Rehoboam, tribe of Judah. This guy named Jeroboam, an Ephraimite, is raised up by God to tear away 11 kingdoms. <coughs> so you have sons of Rachel, sons of Leah. Again, Judah remains the sons of the tribe of Judah remains with the sons of Judah, King Rehoboam. Jeroboam takes away all the other 11 tribes and immediately leaves the capital city back to Shechem. All in the space of about two generations. You have this thing going back and forth, back and forth. And Jeroboam was so concerned that the people of Israel don't, go, don't keep going back to Jerusalem that he actually sets up a false religion and says, you guys actually can worship God up here. Which actually made sense because that is where, uh, that is where God met Abraham first time in the land of Canaan. So you go on throughout uh, Israelite history, and you have this back and forth between the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel. Sometime later, Hezekiah, king of Judah, uh, has a revival down in Jerusalem, and he 
this is just to illustrate the conflict that they had, and he proclaims a Passover. They did not celebrate the Passover in a really long time, hundreds of years in the land of Egypt, or in the land of Israel. Hezekiah proclaims the Passover, and he sends messengers out into, says specifically, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and invites them to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Ephraim and Manasseh respond and say, we're not going down there. Because in their minds, that's not where the Passover was supposed to be kept. It's supposed to be up here. And this feud goes on and on and on. Now, I think that the sons of Jacob made peace with themselves. But they kept fighting this out throughout the course of their history. And we read the last of this conflict in the book of John. It's so interesting. John chapter 4. Talking of Jesus, and he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. So, moving on with the story a little bit here. The woman, um, <clears throat> Verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not my husband. And that saidst thou truly. Now get this, verse 19, The woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So this Samaritan woman, which by the way, likely descendant of Ephraim and Manasseh, is where the Samaritans were, because they, there's still Samaritans around. There. Um <coughs> They had kind of this mixed religion thing going on up there in the northern, what was the old northern kingdom. So this woman, Samaritan woman, meets Jesus at the well, realizes that he is a Hebrew prophet, and right away she has this question for him. All right, Jesus, where is it? That's what she's asking. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's talking about Sychar. This is where Isaac and Abraham worshipped. And that you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So which is it? She's like, she's got the prophet here. She wants to know, is it here or is it there? All the way, centuries down the road, we have the people asking the same stupid question. Who's in charge? And Jesus totally diffuses her question. He says, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And he goes on a little bit more here, but Jesus basically says, it doesn't matter. I have something else for you. You need to forget about this, this fight of who's going to be in charge. I can offer you living water. And I can satisfy your needs. And I was looking at this, as I'm looking at this story here, so there's a revival that happens in Sychar. The woman goes back into the city and Jesus spending two or three days there. A lot of people come to believe in him. And that, as far as I know, is the last time in the scriptures where this conflict between the sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah is mentioned. But they have this thing going on all throughout their history, and Jesus comes and reconciles it. And he brings it back together. So what do we have, what can we learn from that? We place a lot of emphasis on being right. How many times in our desires to be right do we miss the point? 
of what God's trying to tell us. I think being right is important. But I'm not sure that it's always the most important thing. Joseph acknowledged, to go back, into this, to go back to Joseph again, his brothers, when he revealed himself to his brothers, Joseph acknowledged that you meant these circumstances for one thing, but God had something different in mind. In other words, Joseph was willing to look at God as unwilling to look at you. Joseph had such a relationship with God that what happened around him didn't have to determine what he underwent. He did not need to be defined by his family problems and his bad circumstances. And I don't know what your family's like. My family has its problems too. Joseph did not need to be defined by that. Neither did the woman at the well. And neither do you. God, all throughout the course of human history, works with messed up people. That's, that's what he does. He redeems. He takes broken situations. He takes broken families. He takes broken relationships. He even takes power struggles. That's what we, as his people, get to experience when we walk with him.